0: You guys, welcome to episode 83 of The Smush Room, the podcast that deep dives into well-known and more importantly, not so well-known hookups of your favorite reality TV stars. It's me, Sissy Spacek. How's it going? It's good to hear from you. I I have not done an episode alone in like, it's probably been like a month. I think that I've had a guest every week for the past at least three or four weeks, um, which is crazy. And I don't know. I felt like we needed to reconnect. You know what I mean? Just me and you, intimate and all that. You know, just uh, a chill moment. And plus, I really, if I'm being honest with you, selfishly, I love doing episodes like this alone because they require a lot of ranting and rambling from me. Um, This is the kind of episode of this podcast that... I believe, in my opinion. Now you may differ because this is a, a this is a podcast that did start off as like a re- completely reality based situation, <clears throat> and I've dabbled plenty of times into talking about people who are just sort of in the zeitgeist and not really connected to reality TV, or they're like six degrees of separation connected to reality TV, um, like a Charlie Sheen who is connected to a Denise Richards. You know what I mean? So i was going to say episodes like this specifically this is like again i believe that these are like the bread and butter of this podcast like this is just such a classic smush room episode i think potential to be one of my favorites just the drama and it has all my favorite things um it's two people two absolutely iconic people you know during heightened time in their times in their careers um And just, I don't know, like, some absolutely batshit bonkers, nuck-if-you-buck shit goes down between these two. And they've both lived to tell. And this story has been sitting in somebody's attic, covered in cobwebs for the past 20 years, and leave it to me to dig it out, blow that fucking dust off that bitch, and bring it to the surface. And I'm so excited you guys, this week we're gonna be talking about Julia Roberts and Kiefer Sutherland. Which, on the surface, if you don't know anything about this couple, you may think that this is gonna be like a sort of boring episode, but this has, this is anything but boring. This is fucking crazy. It's very, I don't know, this is just like, it has all the makings of my favorite things. Um, it's got cheating, scandalo it girl stuff you know what i mean like all these are a few of my favorite things like legitimately those are the things that make me who i am um you guys know how i feel about julia roberts it's been a long time coming that we talk about her in this podcast and not in passing or because she's mentioned in somebody else's episode or whatever like i just i think it's time that we give this woman her due i'm always comparing people to her i'm always using her as like my template for my favorite kind of it girl um, which of course we'll talk about a little bit today. But yeah, and then Kiefer Sutherland is iconic. I mean, what is there to say except for everything? You know what I mean? I don't I don't know. I mean, he's um he was a huge part of my childhood and Kiefer Sutherland is really interesting to me because I think somehow he's able to kind of like slither between all these scandals where it's, like, they never really become a huge deal, and, you know, he's never really, like, blacklisted or not able to work, or, you know, Kiefer Sutherland isn't being, like, me too'd or anything, and this is a man who's, like, a self-proclaimed alcoholic and, like, proud of it, like, has no plans on stopping drinking, um, loves the bottle, loves his behavior during times with the bottle, and is, like, living his worst life, but, like, in the best way, um so yeah i guess enough rambling i should let you know beforehand i don't know what's going on with me but like i have been coughing and gagging the entire day and by that i mean absolutely nothing has changed or out of the ordinary or or is any different than it normally is i'm constantly coughing and gagging but today it's exceptionally bad um I'm hoarding my cough drops because I don't have that many left. That's a sad thing to say at 30 years old, but I don't have that many left. And the one that I do have, it was one of those rare cases where you open your cough drop and realize that um, during its time on the conveyor belt, I Love Lucy style, somebody, somebody missed a call. Somebody missed a, they missed this cough drop, which is shattered in half so i don't even really have possession of an actual cough drop it's it's a half cough drop which is a problem um which i'm sure you all completely understand anyway you guys julia and keith started dating in november of 1989 they got engaged in august of 1990 and they separated in june of 1991 um not only was this relationship a huge deal and definitively you know tabloid fodder worthy but it also sort of inspired Julia as a runaway bride years later. I don't know if any of you stand that movie, love that movie. I know that it's a lot of people's favorite romantic comedy. Um, You know that I'm a Julia head. I love Runaway Bride, and I was too young to know that Runaway Bride um, had—that that that movie's just existence was sort of tongue-in-cheek and this relationship is sort of the reason that that movie existed, kind of, um, and that it was loosely sort of based on Julia's identity in the press for a short period of time. Um, And yeah, again, as I said earlier, this is just one of those classic bread and butter mushroom couples where it's like, this story writes itself. I, I barely had to do anything to take notes on this because the story writes itself. It is so classic and cliched, but also so crazy there are things that you would never believe happened and it i don't know it fits into all the stereotypes of a a classic hollywood messy relationship between two really young people with a lot of power suddenly um and of course being the gentleman that i am being the kind of guy that puts his coat down when an old lady is crossing the street and all that we're gonna start with julia because ladies first always right um so before we get started, I just want to start by saying that, uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm tr- gonna try and not repeat myself because I've talked about Julia so many times in this podcast, um, but I've never done a true, like, it-girl deep dive on Julia the way that I feel she's deserved. I've only talked about her in passing when I'm talking about people like Drew Barrymore or, you know, Anne Hathaway or whatever, Um and I don't know, I mean, you guys know that, like, Vivian Ward, aka Julia Roberts, is my all-time favorite it girl. She's my favorite romantic comedy queen. I love her brand of romantic comedy. I love her brand of acting. I think that Julia Roberts possesses this quality that not a lot of current actresses have, that they did da- like, a lot of, um, I talked about this with Molly when we were discussing Brittany Murphy, but it's, like, this quality that my favorite comedy queens have where, like, they're so good at comedy that they can also just fucking kill drama. And I think that comedians are incredible at drama because they they, they own it and they're buying into it and they believe it. Um, I don't know, like a woman like Diane Keaton or like a like a, a, a Meryl or a Goldie. Um, <laughs> essentially the cast of First Wives Club, if I'm being honest. But I just love the way women like that deliver comedy and drama in this very sort of like realistic like i don't know i don't know how to describe what i'm trying to say but i feel like you get it you know what i mean um and julia has that thing for me she just i i live for uh a dramatic julia role i think i referenced sleeping with the enemy on this podcast more than any other movie by far um and, well, as you know, Julia is a Southern girl. Uh, she was born in Smyrna, Georgia. Her mom, Betty Lou, was uh, an acclaimed acting coach in the South, and uh, she was an actress herself. Her dad, Walter, was. Um, they divorced in 1972. And before they broke up, they co-founded the Atlanta Actors and Writing, Writers Workshop together. Um, the children of Martin Luther King and Coretta Scott King actually attended the school, and as a thank you, Coretta, um, paid the hospital bill when Julia was born, which is, like, only women like Julia Roberts have coming-of-age stories like that, where you're like, oh, yes, I was acquainted with the King family as a newborn. Like, what? Um, Julia was four, uh, when her father left, so he was not a big part of her life growing up. And as we all know, Julia does have an older brother named Eric, um, father of Emma Roberts, who she was estranged from up until 2004. She also has an older sister named Lisa and a half-sister named Nancy, who died of a drug overdose in 2014. If you go back and listen to the episode I recorded with my friend Christina Laskay, um we talked a lot about Eric, obviously, because uh, of—oh, we recorded an episode about Emma and uh, Evan Peters. We talked a lot about Eric's uh, past and his issues with addiction and why he and Julia were estranged. Also, her sister Nancy, like, this crazy tabloid thing came out a few years ago where it was, like, alleged that Julia was this, like, horrible, mean bully to her half-sister Nancy and that she would, like, bully her for being fat and— we'll never know because nancy's no longer with us but um you know the roberts family is just full of they are sort of like the hogans like they literally are the gift that keeps on giving um as far as childhoods go julia was sort of normal in the sense that she came from a very classically american broken family uh probably more comparable to like probably comparable to more of us than not you know what i mean um her mother's second husband was actually described by her mom as abusive and unemployed in pretty much every article i could find and uh she went to a very normal elementary middle and high school and as a kid she was bullied pretty horrendously because of her lips and her teeth which is crazy because those became the thing that she's now known for um But let us not forget, Julia Roberts was raised in the deep, deep South, and, uh, you know, because of the size of her lips, she was told pretty regularly that she was ugly because she looked like a black girl. She had, quote, black girl lips, and she was, like, called racial slurs all the time, and um, she was extremely insecure. I would imagine as insecure as Kylie is about her acne. Um, You are not alone i'm sorry kendall is about her acne you are not alone people um yeah it was this really 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 big deal for her throughout all of her childhood and most of her uh sort of formative uh, young adult years um she originally wanted to study to work as a veterinarian but she decided to move to new york as a teenager to pursue acting she ended up living with her sister, Lisa, who was also trying to become an actress. And she worked at Baskin Robbins and Ann Taylor uh, while she was attending acting classes and working with a dialect coach to get rid of her Southern accent. Now, I will tell you, one of my favorite things about going back and watching old interviews with Julia Roberts as, like, a 20-year-old is how heavy her Southern drawl is. Like, I wish to God she had kept that accent and incorporated it in more roles Because it shows itself sometimes, but she has one of those weird Southern accents where it almost sounds fake. Like, it almost sounds like she's a girl trying to do, like, a parody of a Southerner, but she's, like, not good at it. But that's her natural accent. And there's a very specific Golden Globes speech that we're going to talk about when we get to the end of this episode that will mean way more to you then than it does now, so I'll just not waste your time. But, um, when you go back and listen to it, it's from 1991. She's so Southern. I mean, she's like fucking Blanche Devereaux on stage. I'm not even kidding. So in 1985, Julia was hired by an agent and she had signed to click modeling agency, but left almost immediately. Like I said, she was still super insecure about her lips and uh she had told her sister like i can't imagine a world in which like anybody views me as a model so i'm like not doing this and i'm not gonna waste my time uh so she left like immediately um in 1986 her brother eric who was already sort of famous pretty well known at the time he got her a part in a film called blood red and that movie didn't end up coming out until 1989, but by that time, Julia was becoming a household name. Uh, she did the classic, sort of, like, big mega superstar early years shenanigans the buffoonery of starring in, like, really shitty TV movies and on, like, cop dramas and shows like Murder, She Wrote. Um, <clears throat> she uh, Her true screen debut, or at least the one that is worth talking about, came in October, Of 1988, she starred as Daisy Arujo in the film Mystic Pizza, which is, you guessed it, iconic. First of all, this period of Julia's life is very interesting to me because it does sort of showcase this whole plethora of firsts um, for her of things that she would kind of go on to become known for. You know, in Mystic Pizza, she's this, like, unintentionally beautiful, like, working-class girl who sort of falls, you know, for a well-to-do bachelor, which is something that Julia definitely became known for in her movies, and it also shows her getting revenge on a man or a group of people who, you know, sell her short, which is another Julia Roberts cliche, um, now she then went on to star again in the super underground it's one of those as we talk about all the time it's a black market item it's a black market you've got to really know a guy it's called steel magnolias you guys can we talk for a second i don't even know what to say let me just do that let me just do some housekeeping first this was an ensemble cast for those of you who don't know for those of you listening to this podcast who shouldn't be apparently uh It was an ensemble cast. Uh, Julia was cast as Shelby, the bride to be diabetic, and um, she received her first Oscar nomination and Golden Globe win because of this movie. Julia was actually the last person to be cast in this movie. Uh, Shelby was originally meant to be played by Meg Ryan, who turned the movie down last minute to star in When Harry Met Sally. They were also interested in Laura Dern and Winona Ryder. I cannot begin to tell you how many times I've been doing research for this podcast and read that Meg Ryan and Winona Ryder were meant to star in a film. Meg Ryan and Winona Ryder have to be two of the most, I mean, like, it really, really puts it into perspective. How sought out these women were, and like, just what it feels like to have the world sort of like in the palm of your hand as a like a young, beautiful ingenue. Because it's fucking insane. I swear to you, and I'm not being dramatic. I promise. I really, I can't even count how many movies I've talked about in this podcast that I bring them up. It's crazy. So obviously, there's a Meg Ryan episode that has to be coming soon because, duh. Uh Uh, but it's just crazy. Like it's almost every time I mention like a classic movie from the 80s or 90s that they're always talked about. Um Robert Harling, who wrote Steel Magnolias about his sister, had seen Mystic Peace (laughs) Mystic Pizza and insisted they test her. Uh he said she walked into the room and that smile lit everything up. And I said, That's my sister. So she joined the party and she was, of course, magnificent julia would come to come over to my house and see my mom and dad and all the time Uh, she worked so hard she would sit on the couch and look through scrapbooks and eat hamburgers with my dad um now julia was also very famously tormented by the director of this movie herbert ross who died of heart failure in october of 2001 Um, this was his first movie. He was relentless. He would tell the actresses on a daily basis that they couldn't act. Um, He was just, he was a nightmare. Uh, Shirley MacLaine said in an interview that I read, she said, Julia would come to my house every night and say, I think I'm terrible. What am I doing wrong? And she was always in tears, trembling. I remember the day Herb said to Dolly, you don't, why don't you take some acting lessons and guess what? You don't fucking say that to Dolly Parton. And apparently, like, the veteran actresses on the set would, they all bonded. Like, all of the women on the set, like, the the camaraderie that you see at the end of the movie is based on, um, fear. They were basically at Camp Krusty, and (laughs) this man, this, like, terror director bonded them together because the, the veteran actresses, would have to defend Julia. So they would like never really leave her alone because she couldn't defend herself. And she was so susceptible and sort of vulnerable to his criticism. This is a girl who feels, this is like a, a young girl in her early 20s, plucked from fucking Mahia, Texas or whatever, and told, you're about to start a movie with Dolly Parton, Shirley McLean. Like, I mean, it's wild. Sally Field, come on. Can I mean, can you imagine? So, she was completely torn up and, again, tormented by this guy. The women all pretty much hated him. Um, he even went as far as to tell her one time on set in front of all of the other women that she needed to visit a dermatologist before they could continue production because she had a blemish under her eye that he didn't like. Just, like, random shit to be a terror asshole. Um... Now, I've got to really, really, let me take a sip of water. I I really need to, like, I need to pull myself back, understand that I am in control of myself, I'm in control of my thoughts, my body, I'm in control, and I'm able to talk about this thing without being crazy or talking about it for an hour or getting, like, weirdly sort of violent with myself or, you know, there's no point. This is a fun podcast. And we're going to talk about Pretty Woman because we have to. And it just so happens to be my favorite movie. And we're just going to do it. And I'm going to be chill about it. And I'm going to be calm. And that's just all there is to it. Because I'm 30 years old and I'm able to do that. So in March of 1990, Julia followed Steel Magnolias up with, again, Super Rare. It's an underground film. you got to find it on the dark web. It's a snuff film uh, called Pretty Woman. It's a snuff film called Pretty Woman. And, um... If you know a guy who knows a guy maybe you can get get your hands on a copy. I don't know. I don't know what to tell you. It's locked in the Disney vault. <laughs> we won't see it again until it's released in 2026. Um, Pretty Woman was in, originally intended to be like this super dark, humorless sex thriller, which is actually my that's my brand like that is actually my full kink you know that about me now if you've listened to more than one episode of this podcast i wouldn't call my favorite sexual thrillers humorless though like i wouldn't say fatal attraction is humorless it's very funny um i wouldn't say basic instinct is humorless i wouldn't say body of lies is humorless but um that does sort of give you an idea of what this movie was meant to be before it became pretty woman um you know, this is a movie about the dangers of working in the sex industry in Los Angeles. Uh, when Julia was on inside the actor studio, she said that sh- the original, she described the original script as a really dark and depressing, horrible, terrible story about two really horrible people. And the script ended up being purchased by Disney so that Gary Marshall could direct. Um, it went through this whole series of rewrites and changes that were meant to sort of lighten it up and lighten up the tone and introduce this more comedic-driven Cinderella story. This was supposed to be a modern-day Cinderella story. Um, And again, Pretty Woman set the tone for the next 15 years, at least, of her career. And it it really reintroduced us to Julia Roberts, if you really want to know the truth. Um, You know, the template for, like, a successful... Julia Roberts style film was created with this movie. A uh, down on her luck, downtrodden, uneducated, very funny and lovable, but also sexy, fish out of water, being thrown into a world that makes no sense. She's vulnerable, she's sweet. You know, uh, you want to bring her home to your parents, but also you want to like fuck her on a car. Um, you know, all the things. Uh, The Dissolve.com described Julia as the forever bad girl turned good. And it's very true. Julia is the kind of person who starts off a romantic comedy being like this, not terrible person, but like an underdeveloped person. And then she ends as like a swan, always. Um, I, I really honestly couldn't think of a better way to describe her. And I'm always, if I'm being honest with you, beyond like the eight girl thing. I'm always fascinated by how formulaic some actors are and how they accept roles and how they're able to kind of pull the the wool over our eyes. And for a super long time, like we don't really realize it. Like we get very comfortable in seeing an actor in a specific kind of way. And it reminded me a lot when I was doing research of Joan Crawford, who like, during the height of her career, was also known for doing movies that showed her as, again, a relatable, down-to-earth, uneducated woman who was always sort of secretly smarter than everybody else in the room, but not confident enough to, I don't know, showcase that. And, you know, and then she would have to overcome some sort of mountain of adversity and beat the odds. You know, Joan made inspirational films for women, And it became the thing that she was mostly known for. Like, most notably, Mildred Pierce is the perfect example uh, of, like, a a self-reliant woman who, like, you know, white-knuckled it to the end and it ended up, you know, paying off and all the people who did her wrong were scorned and, you know, like, the whole thing. I've also discussed this a lot in Tom Cruise episodes, who for many years did the exact same thing for about over 10 straight years, Tom starred in movies that showed him as an underappreciated underdog who, you know, he can never help but to do the right thing, you know, almost to his detriment and, you know, works really hard to overcome adversity and naysayers. And you guys know if you've been listening to this podcast for a long time, I am obsessed with, no, all jokes aside, I am very obsessed with Julia Roberts' specific brand of it girl because you know that there's all different kinds in my opinion but i i love julia's formula of it girl and it also ironically is the one that terrifies me the most and that i would be the least um appreciative of if it was placed upon me lap you know what i mean um i would say in modern times like jennifer lawrence is the closest thing we've seen to a julia roberts style like meteoric rise And, you know, the way that we sort of celebrated Jennifer Lawrence at the beginning of her career just had so many Julia vibes. Like, we just wanted to see her be herself. Like, it was just fun watching Jennifer Lawrence be herself and be, like, sort of dorky and, like, snort and embarrass herself in front of Jack Nicholson and fall up the stairs. Like, all of those things. Like, we used to fucking eat that shit up. We couldn't get enough. And it's the same for Julia Roberts. Like, You put a a 20-year-old Julia Roberts on screen and get her to laugh, you've got a fucking movie. Like, truly. Get her to laugh eight times and play with her and tossle her hair. You have a multi-million dollar film that transcends generations. Um, And I do think it's really interesting, you know, the way way somebody like Jennifer Lawrence has been able to sort of navigate her it-girl status... in my opinion, would be similar to how Julia would have if she was around, if she was 20 years old during, like, a social media time. If Julia Roberts was 20 or 21 years old during a time when you have to kind of live on, like, Snapchat and fucking Instagram. I think that it would be similar to, to a, uh, a Jennifer Lawrence. But neither here nor there, Pretty Woman had a a budget of 14 million dollars and it went on to make 463 million dollars making it the third highest grossing film of the year after home alone and ghost pretty woman is also disney's highest grossing r-rated film of all time um it was nominated for several golden globes and julia won that year for best actress in a comedy or musical now we have to talk about your golden boy Kiefer Sutherland. We have to talk about you guys as 80s heartthrob, your 80s bad boy, your chain smoking, toe-headed, raspy-voiced bad boy. Kiefer is interesting to me. I mentioned earlier that he fascinates me because he's one of those like I would imagine for Kiefer a sober Kiefer who's like fully in his right mind that it feels I would imagine he feels the need to sort of tiptoe and tread lightly through Hollywood because we all know about Kiefer's insane past, and still he gets this Robert Downey Jr. edit of like, "Well, the '80s were crazy. He used to be an alcoholic. Whatever. You know what I mean? Like nobody really takes the time to kind of like delve into Kiefer's insanity, especially he's like the male Heather Locklear." If you want to know the truth, he may be in like a normal—I don't want to say normal. That's a—that's inappropriate. Like he's—he's in a uh, a healthy enough state of mind that he presents as healthy to the media. Where Heather Locklear is just like not right now. Um, She can't even present herself as healthy. Um, But I mean, your boy's been arrested about nine million times, and he's been an alcoholic his entire life, and he is very open about the fact that he doesn't like want to be sober you guys i hate to cut you off but at this point i think you know the drill you've got to be a patreon member to hear the remainder of this episode so go to patreon.com slash ev psychos at that point you will uh be asked to donate and then when you donate at this level you'll get this podcast you'll get the remainder of all the episodes every single week you'll get liz bentley's feathers in my hair which is the teen mom podcast um you'll get me and molly's uh, Brittany and kevin chaotic special you'll get all the stuff that molly does exclusively through patreon it's well worth it and also if you're not a member of our facebook group go to molly it'll take you straight to it and uh all we do all day and all night is talk about reality tv it's super fun so like i said patreon.com slash eb psychos and molly and